The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. The third quarter closed out with some green shoots in the IPO market. But the days of startups going public through special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, remain firmly rooted in the recent past. SPACs were popular among space companies, leading to a flurry of stocks focused on everything from human spaceflight to rockets and satellite imaging. But as the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates and investors have focused more fundamentally on cash flow and profits, the space SPACs have gotten smashed. The SPAC bubble looked a lot like the dot-com uh, era. There was a lot of very questionable business plans that were getting funded at extremely high valuations. And I think that the, many of those are now uh, coming home to roost. Uh, I don't think the amount of money put in uh, was as big as the dot-com bubble. We didn't have uh, large uh, multi-million dollar investments as you had in, in Iridium and Globalstar. But you had a number of several hundred million dollar investments, uh, which are now uh, you know, not doing so well. Some have shut down. We're seeing sort of a cleanup of the industry. So the fallout hasn't been quite as bad, but uh, we are definitely seeing the, the fallout from that. Armand Musi has been studying the telecom, satellite, and space sectors since the 90s. Named to the Institutional Investor All-America team three times during his tenure at Bank of America. In 2007, he founded his own research and advisory firm, Summit Ridge Group, to consult for heavy hitters like Viasat, OneWeb, SES, Qualcomm, and others. On this episode, we talk space company valuations, market trends, and why the industry may come to regret the spate of SPACs. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Let's talk a little bit about Summit Ridge Group, uh, what you do at Summit Ridge. Sure, we do uh, valuation and uh, industry analysis in the satellite media and telecom sectors exclusively. So that's everything. I, I joke that it's uh, work for due diligence before deals. Uh, when deals go bad, we do litigation support. And when things go really bad, we do uh, restructuring. I say that in jest, but uh, essentially that's, there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. And you, you've been covering this sector for a long time. I think a couple of decades. You've seen, you've seen things change quite a bit. Right. I started uh, back in the TMT boom in the late 1990s as a uh, satellite research analyst on Wall Street for uh, several large firms, and then have continued and now working as a as a consultant in my own firm, Summit Ridge Group. So I've seen the uh, the ups and the downs and uh, uh, some of the more outrageous business plans, and uh, also have seen some things work spectacularly successfully. So how much how much does the period that we have just come out of here, the last couple of years, feel like? The dot-com era and then the, and then the <laughs> correction we saw there. I think the SPAC bubble looked a lot like the dot-com uh, era. There was a lot of very questionable business plans that were getting funded at extremely high valuations. And I think that the, many of those are now uh, coming home to roost. Uh, I don't think the amount of money put in uh, was as big as the dot-com bubble. We didn't have uh, large uh, multi-million dollar investments as you had in, in uh, sorry, in uh, Iridium and Globalstar, uh, but you had a number of several hundred million dollar investments, uh, which are you know, now uh, you know, not doing so well. Uh, some have shut down. 
uh, and we're, we're seeing sort of a cleanup of the industry. So the fallout hasn't been quite as bad, um, but uh, we are definitely seeing the, the fallout from that. Yeah, you mentioned the cleanup. Would you, would you say we're right-sized right now, especially given uh, the, the draining of liquidity, the uh, re-falling to earth of valuations and, um, and some of the consolidation that's happened? Oh, I think we have uh, another year or two to go. I think there was a number of companies that did raise a fair amount of money in the SPAC bubble with that period, and they still have some cash on their balance sheets. And we'll, you'll see some companies merging uh, or restructuring or go, going out of business entirely. I don't think uh, we, we've seen the end of it. Um, I think there's a little ways to go. Sounds like you're busy then. <laughs> yes, we're very busy. Uh, on all those fronts. Uh, yeah, busy on all those fronts, absolutely. There's still um, a number of, there's still money out there for companies that have uh, real revenue uh, and are close to cash flow or have some cash flow, uh, particularly those that have defense related contracts. So there's uh, still activity on the uh, front end investment. And I think after the dot com bubble, there was almost no investment for a couple of years. Uh, we're still seeing some here. And uh, obviously, we're seeing uh, uh, investors who are not happy with what they invested in and are looking for recourse. Uh, so we're seeing some litigation support and obviously we're seeing uh, restructuring uh, for companies that have actually run out of cash. So, may so, maybe, so maybe we haven't been here before then. Maybe this time is a little different. Because I feel like there's a lot of these technologies and capabilities we were talking about in the late 90s and that money was being put to work, but it just, it didn't materialize. And now it seems like maybe some of the technologies, some of the costs associated um, with those technologies and getting them to space, et cetera, um, that, that, it's almost, that it's a new chapter. It is, I think. Uh, you know, in the 1990s, a lot of money was put, or late 1990s, 2000, a lot of money was put into low Earth orbit satellite technology. And the cost of launch at that point, the cost of developing satellites made the, the business plans just not work. Uh, so Iridium is a perfect example. Uh, roughly $6 billion was invested into Iridium and then it was sold for uh, in bankruptcy for a total of 25 million million. So it went from 6 billion to 25 million. Uh, and that included some working capital, uh, about 19 million of working capital. So it really sold for approximately 6 million. Um, so those, yeah, at that point, the technology just could not support a, a viable business plan. Uh, now we're seeing companies uh, like Starlink being very successful uh, with its low earth orbit uh, satellite system. Um, Iridium has put up another generation of satellites. It uh, looks like that is uh, going to be successful. Uh, Global, Apple put, is putting some money into GlobalStar uh, to put up another generation of uh, GlobalStar satellites. It looks like that's being successful. So now I think the cost curve on the lowest orbit satellites has actually gotten to the point where uh, a business model can actually work under so the right we, conditions. Gotcha. <laughs> so, when, so when we talk about, so we talk about areas within the space sector, where maybe you are seeing, you know, more regular revenue being generated. You are seeing the possibility, or at least positive, or I'll say positive cash flow, or at least the possibility of it on the mm -hmm. horizon. Um, is it is it some of these satellite businesses, or is it other is it other areas? Um, it, well, definitely, you're seeing it in satellite businesses. There are you know companies that, like I said, are now uh, viable or potentially viable. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is still dependent upon. Um, or disproportionately dependent on government revenue. But you have a lot of uh, 
uh, imaging services that are dependent on government revenue, uh, you know, a number of component manufacturers for satellites that are uh, dependent on government revenue. Um, but uh, yeah, you're definitely seeing it in the, in the satellite sector. Uh, but I think you're also seeing many of the same technologies from space uh, in the terrestrial uh, telecom sector. Uh, so for example, the newer satellites going up are increasingly software defined. And you're also seeing software defined hardware in, in terrestrial um, communications as well. Uh, so the, the difference between uh, what you see in space and what you see in earth in terms of uh, technology cycles are becoming increasingly uh, similar. Hmm. So what does that mean for the future? Does that mean <laughs> the competitive landscape has just expanded? Well, I sometimes joke that uh, it wasn't until a few years ago, the, uh, the satellite sector uh, finally discovered Moore's law. Um, and I, I said that in jest, but the rate of development of the, the space sector has increased massively in the last five to 10 years. It used to be very much a, um, an industry that was dominated by the, the big aerospace companies. And now increasingly uh, folks with a more of a technology or a Silicon Valley type mindset have entered the industry. And uh, you're seeing much faster uh, development cycles, much faster iterations. And part of that's been made possible by the fact that the cost of launch has come down. And so it's possible to try things over and over again because the cost of launch is not what it once was. Uh, back in the 1990s, the cost of launching a satellite was so high that there was less focus on innovation and more focus on making sure nothing went wrong. Uh, but that's changed. And so now you're, you're finally seeing the, uh, both the satellite industry, you know, in terms of development, catch up with uh, terrestrial wireless and, and terrestrial even wireline technology. And you're also seeing those networks starting to be integrated. Uh, you've seen announcements from uh, Starlink uh, doing an alliance with uh, T-Mobile to bring uh, satellite uh, reception to your T-Mobile phone. Apple's made a similar announcement with Global Star. You're seeing these networks become increasingly uh, integrated as their, um, I think, technology development cycles become more more similar. Yeah, I mean, you might even put the Echo Star Dish uh, remerger in that bucket. I think to a certain extent too, um, and it kind of speaks to th this need for connectivity and the digitization of everything. Um, and what and what space brings to the table, or I guess space-based technologies bring to the table, uh, as that becomes a, a bigger and bigger demand and a bigger, bigger, what's the word, tax on on more terrestrial infrastructure. Yeah, and part of it is that uh, people's expectations are increasing. I know that I was uh, extremely frustrated uh, last week coming back from a conference in Paris, and there was no satellite internet on the on the plane. You know, people are starting to come to expect. 24-7 uh, uh, connectivity no matter where you are, whether you're on a plane or on a cruise boat uh, or on a train. And in many of those cases, the only way to bridge that gap and bring uh, connectivity in those areas is by, by satellite. And finally, the, the price points are coming down to the level where that's uh, cost-effective to do. What were your takeaways from the Paris conference? Wow, that was a uh, you know the big Paris conference. Uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways is that the, the industry has changed uh, in the sense that uh, not only for the reasons that we've discussed, but that it's increasingly under the control of 
a couple of billionaires, uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, and I know Richard Branson was trying, and they're increasingly dominating the um, the industry. And to the extent that space is important for uh, national defense purposes, the government is a little bit out of the loop. You know, back in the old days, the old days being 10 years ago, uh, you, the government, major governments around the world knew exactly where satellite development was going. You know, Lockheed or Boeing would go to the government and say, you know, if you give us a few hundred million dollars, we can add this capability. And the government would decide yes or no. And they knew exactly where things were going. Now um, you have individuals who are completely out innovating the big uh, aerospace defense companies and uh, the governments around the world really have no idea what's going to be coming out a year or two or, or three years down the line. And I think that's uh, just a, a huge change for the industry and is probably fairly scary for the defense uh, departments of different countries. Europe right now, for example, does not have a, a viable launch industry. Mm. They don't have a launcher. <laughs> they can't get to the International Space Station. Uh, and until a couple of years ago, uh, Ariane, the French launch company, really dominated the Western uh, launch industry. You know, now they're, you know, they're nowhere. Uh, and that's really because SpaceX has uh, lowered prices and essentially made them um, non-competitive. So what does this look like moving forward then? Because you are starting to see governments. I mean, I think about here in the U.S., NASA was sort of on the forefront of it, but even you know the DOD is moving towards this uh, to the extent the bureaucracy enables. Um, but this idea of more you know uh, public-private partnerships and 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 partnerships with commercial space in a way that maybe didn't exist even a couple of years ago. Yeah, the government has no choice <laughs> if they want to know what's happening in space and want to be you know, somewhere near the cutting edge. Uh, they have to be uh, very involved much more deeply in the supply chain and really understand, uh, really be interacting with these companies at earlier stages. It's no longer uh, essentially waiting for Lockheed or Boeing to call them and suggest something. They, they really have to be deeply involved. And then uh, yeah, in Europe, for example, where they don't have um, uh, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, they're, they're sort of stuck. Um, they've resorted to essentially putting together committees of bureaucrats with huge budget to try to figure out how to become more entrepreneurial, uh, which uh, is, I don't think it's likely to be uh, very successful. But uh, yeah, they're just really struggling to figure out how to uh, be competitive going forward. But you're right, the governments have to be, become more deeply involved. Uh, otherwise, they're going to have no idea what's going on. And then they're going to be surprised by something that comes out of another country and has some capability that the, uh, uh, the U.S. government would really like to have. Are there certain capabilities that you're, you know, watching or keeping close tabs on that are under development right now sure, that would huge, kind of fit that bill? Sure. A, a huge one is uh, in space, um, uh, in, in space servicing. So the ability to go up to a satellite and repair it or keep it stabilized if it runs out of fuel. That's uh, a, a new idea. And uh, it's marginally uh, commercially viable, I think, but it's incredibly important to the defense agencies around the world because that same technology could grab onto a Russian satellite or a Chinese satellite mm -hmm. and put it out of commission. 
so you're probably going to see governments around the world uh, subsidizing that kind of technology, even though it's not uh, commercially viable, but because the defense agencies want to have access to that technology. They want to be able to uh, attach to a, and call it an enemy country's satellite and uh, you know put it out of commission or uh, be able to go and fix a very important uh, uh, US satellite uh, that may be uh, disabled for some for some reason and can be repaired. But I think you see a lot of activity there. Yeah, I, I actually was just with um, Northrop Grumman at their space headquarters uh, down in well. DC. Yeah, and, uh, and, and got to see a little bit of the space logistics business and, and these capabilities that they're building out um, yeah. and sort of where that's where that's headed and how that's going to evolve to your point. So, so Northrop as I sold, I believe sold a total of three of those in the last uh, five years or so, which is not very many, but I don't think that the U S government has any option, but to continue to subsidize that in one form or another, mm. because they absolutely want that capability. If they need to, you know, like I said, disable a Russian satellite or something like that. Yeah. So then I guess, I guess in terms of where, where companies that are coming up with ideas or where, where the investor dollars that are still circulating right now are, are going, um, is it really focused on these companies that are working on stuff uh, around the government? I guess, is that the most compelling part of the market right now? Is that the market that's going to have legs um, through this cycle? Yeah, that's the simplest market, right? If you're an investor, there's a guaranteed money when you have government contracts. And that's the simplest way to make sure that some budding technology uh, actually makes it to market. Uh, longer term, though, to be highly successful, these companies do need to develop a, a commercial market to, to really help them them grow. Um, you know, most of the government contracts are going to be cost plus or uh, allow some sort of standardized margin. Uh, to be really successful, they're they're going to need uh, to find a way to uh, develop a robust commercial market, and that in many cases seems to be lagging a little bit. Uh, place where we've seen the most progress has been on broadband, consumer broadband. Uh, if you look at Starlink or what's happening with uh, Amazon's project Kuiper or Telesat's um, a light speed project, uh, prices are coming down uh, so fast on uh, broadband and the price of the consumer terminals have come down so much that it's actually viable for consumers in many markets to uh, use satellite for consumer broadband, uh, which would have been unthinkable even uh, five five years ago. Wow. Um, we're seeing a lot of M&A, uh, to your point earlier, uh, including among the satellite in industry and, and the communications uh, satellite companies. Is, is that going to continue? Yeah, I, margins are, you know, prices are coming down. Uh, there are so many companies that were funded uh, earlier that I think there's no choice but for uh, M&A to happen. Um, and then you have many of the existing uh, old timers, uh, the SESs, the Intelsats, the Utilsats of the world, uh, formerly the Inmarsats of the world. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, uh, in many cases, they're, their assets are becoming stranded because they have debt from satellites put up five and 10 years ago. Uh, prices are coming down, and uh, they're being out-engineered by new entrants like Biosat. And so I think you're going to see um, more M&A, uh, 
horizontal M&A between providers to get economies of scale, to get new technology. But then I think you'll also see, because prices are coming down uh, for services, you're going to see more vertical M&A. Companies are trying to become more vertically integrated uh, and cut out the middleman. So you've seen uh, Intelsat acquire um, uh, GoGo's uh, commercial aviation uh, or sort of passenger aviation business. Uh, you're going to see more activity uh, like that. Hmm. I mean, and if you sort of look at the companies that have been most successful, it's the ones that have been vertically integrated, whether it's Viasat or Echostar or it's um, Starlink. They've been vertically integrated, and that seemed to serve uh, those companies quite quite well. Have you been surprised to see that some of the SPAC companies, for example, there hasn't been more consolidation or more deal-making activity among some of those? Yeah, well, I mean, the challenge there is that I think you'll see more consolidation, but some of them don't have much to sell. You know, if you have, all you have is some IP that didn't work, there's not much to, to offer in a merger. Mm. And so you may see some of those just shut down. So, so, so I'm going to ask a question then about, because I've heard pros and cons, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Was the wave of, uh, of SPACs for space companies a good thing or a bad thing for the industry? I, I think long-term it's, uh, it's a bad thing. I mean, it did provide a lot of money to the industry, which funded R&D, which will be used somewhere because some of that R&D will have some value. But I think it also distorts the market. It uh, prevented companies that maybe were more um, deserving from getting money. Uh, I think even now you have some SPACs that have a, a war chest of money that are moving forward and crowding out companies that uh, maybe developed without uh, raising money at those kind of artificially high levels. So I think anytime when you have um, money put in at an inappropriate valuation, it ends up uh, distorting the market and harming folks who sort of did things right. And so ultimately, I think, uh, you know, we'll look back in 10 years and say this wasn't a great thing, but yeah. you know, there will be some R&D that we'll be using for a long time, just as when we had the TMT bubble in 2000. Uh, a lot of that technology is you know, being used today. You know, even the technology that uh, was developed by companies that uh, went bankrupt a long time ago. A lot of software programmers were trained during that era who are still working today. Uh, but I think long-term it's uh, not healthy. Got it. Uh, the fact that we're starting to see the IPO market crack open, the traditional IPO market uh, open back up uh, with a couple of, a couple of offerings here. Are there, are there contenders out there that are private in the space Worlds that that you could actually see go public as you know, for lack of a better term, a more grown-up company with more traditional regulatory process. I think a lot of people are waiting to see if um, SpaceX or Starlink uh, goes public. Although, uh, given Elon Musk's uh, continued continued challenges with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, he may not be eager to do that. <laughs> um, that's the most obvious one, uh, the top of my head. Um, okay. But I think you'll, you know, there's, there's a never ending supply of you know, creative people in the, um, the satellite industry. And, 
they're always looking for ways to raise money. So I, so I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I think a lot of the exciting things that are going to happen are going to be on the equipment side. And so that actually might be a place to look for potential um, IPO candidates. Interesting. One of, one of the things that's you know, happened in equipment in the last several years is that for a, a Leo flat panel antenna a couple of years ago from Kaimeta was $30,000 or $35,000. Uh, now, Starlink in Paris indicated that they are not subsidizing their antennas, uh, which they're selling at $599. So the price has come from $30,000 down to $600 or $600. Wow. And suddenly you've gone from something that's you know, not a consumer price point for really anybody, except maybe some the billionaire on a yacht, to something that actually could be uh, consumer friendly, at least in some markets. I think a lot of the, that's actually a, sort of an underappreciated uh, part of the industry. And cash flows there are often more regular and sometimes that lends them better to, um, to IPOs. Got it. Any other sort of, you know, big trends or factors that you're watching right now? Takeaways? Um, I said the, the you know big one is uh, vertical integration. Mm-hmm. Um, the sorry, the other um, item that's happening in the industry is there's a lot of talk about uh, implementing AI, and I know that's kind of a buzzword everywhere. But there's some you know real reasons that that can be um, important in space, particularly in space management. When you have um, Starlink has what five thousand satellites up. Um, and there's probably going to be a thousand satellites launched a year for the next several years is preventing those from running into each other and running into space debris. And one of the things AI can do is help uh, essentially manage the, the satellite fleet to take automatic corrective action to prevent uh, satellite crashing. Uh, you can also use it to optimize frequencies. Uh, so when you have a plane, for instance, going in and out of clouds or bad weather and you need to adjust the um, uh, the power levels on the um, on the transmitter, or change the compression, or something like that, in relation to the atmospheric conditions. A lot that AI can do. Um, also, downloading images. You have uh, these uh, remote sensing satellites gathering enormous amount of data, but they don't have the capacity to download it all. But you can use AI to um, essentially scan the images or scan the data, and only download the good data, not the pictures of the tops of clouds, for example. Got it. <clears throat> All right. Final question for you. Sure. Winners and losers. Sorry, where is what? <laughs> Winners and losers. Like we, we oh. talked about, you know, are there, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, there is a lot of concepts that are kicking around right now and a lot of projects and capabilities that folks are working on. I mean, are there certain things that you go, this is crazy. This is just this this has no viability, or is it still just too soon to tell, especially before Starship comes online? Okay, so uh, winners, I think uh, it's really already looking like Starlink and uh, SpaceX are, are winners, and it doesn't look like that's changing too much in the future. Uh, there may be one or two other um, LEO broadband systems that are successful. But I think after that, it's going to be very, very hard for additional entrants. Um, another potential winner, and this is this will be an interesting one to look at, is um, is Viasat. 
which is uh, focused on geostationary broadband and uh, and has really pushed the envelope with uh, technology uh, so much so that their last satellite Viasat 3 um, looks like had some was having some challenges and we'll know the full extent of that in a few weeks oh hmm. uh, they've really been at the cutting edge of getting more bandwidth on a, a single satellite and that may be very effective at being able to put large amounts of capacity over concentrated areas like Indonesia for example or certain parts of Latin America, you know, where the LEOs have to spread their uh, capacity around the world. So that's another interesting one to, uh, to look at. Uh, the other losers I would look, without naming names, I would look at uh, the many up and coming launch companies. Okay. I think there are 60 launch companies that have received uh, funding uh, to date. There's no way that anywhere near that is gonna be successful. Yeah, and you see it even with the launch companies that are successful. Uh, and are already operating that they uh, diversify beyond launch to stuff that maybe has got a higher margin and is a more economically attractive business model. Yeah, launch is a really hard business that it seems uh, too many people want to go into. It's kind of like the restaurant business in New York. <laughs> it's just, you just look at these companies going in and think, why? Yeah, nobody's, nobody's looking really at the margins, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you uh, want to go into the launch business, you must really not like yourself or something. It's um, it's going to be very painful. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.